that I know that there are many Christians and Christians that I even know that are right now there working and, and being with the people that they would give a message of hope and a message of, of, of truth to those who need to hear it. And Lord, it would cause us to turn to you and cause this nation to turn to you as we see these events going on. And Lord, I pray tonight that we would open our ears to you and what you want to say to us. We're so thankful for your incredible word that we get to study tonight. And may we be attentive to what you want to say. So Lord, bless this time, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we've been going through First Chronicles, as I've been uh, mentioning to you, that the writer of 1 Chronicles is inspired by the Spirit of God to reiterate the events that we've already looked at as we went through 2 Samuel through 2 Kings. That is the reign of David. And then we're going to see that Solomon's going to build a temple. And then we'll be looking once again at the kings of Judah. But one of the things that we see very clearly here is First and Second Chronicles brings out the spiritual perspective and priority of what was taking place. And certainly I see that as we're looking at the reign of David. And David was one, of course, that the Lord's hand was on him. He was a man after God's own heart. And it is coming out in a very powerful way how David really desired to please the Lord. And he desired to do things for the Lord out of uh, a desire to honor him and to bless the Lord. And David was one that he's been defeating his enemies. He defeated the Jebusites and took Jerusalem. And he built the city of David. So he would establish Jerusalem as the place of worship, as he would bring the Ark of the Covenant from Kerjeth Jerim that was left there during the days of Saul because Saul wasn't interested in spiritual things. And so David says, we're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant over to Jerusalem and put it in the tabernacle of meeting. And there David would begin to place uh, Jerusalem as the central place of worship. And it was more than David just putting the Ark of the Covenant in a tent and said, well, we did that. But what David did is, again, the writer of Chronicles is bringing out, what David did is he organized the Levites to where there was magicians there giving worship before the Lord 24-7, continually before the Lord, these magicians that were there giving praise to God. So worship was very important to David. And David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He gave a song of thanksgiving when the ark was brought to Jerusalem. He's giving praise to the Lord. He's establishing the nation as uh, a nation that worship is very much an important part of it. And we also know that David desired to build a temple. And you know the story how the, the Lord said to David, you're not going to build a temple, but David, your son is going to build a temple. But that didn't stop David, as we're going to continue to see from helping prepare Solomon to build the temple. In other words, David was told you're not going to build the temple, but he began to make preparations for when he would die and Solomon came on the scene, that then uh, Solomon would have everything in place and he would be able to build the temple because David says, you know, my son's going to be young and he's going to be inexperienced. So David has been organizing the Levites. We'll continue to see that. Uh, the gatekeepers, you know, those who did every manner of service uh, to different families, different, you know, divisions that we're going to see. The, again, uh, those who were helping the priests in the service, organizing the priests, organizing the military, getting the supplies ready for the temple. So David really was desiring to please God in that um, as he just wanted to honor the Lord in the things that he did. And we know that God's hand 
being with David, he's defeating his enemies. And we left off last time with David defeating the Ammonites and the Syrians that had banded together. You recall that David sent some ambassadors to the king of Ammon who had uh, lost his father. And David had a, a good uh, relationship with King Nahash. And, and he dies and he sends some ambassadors to his son to uh, give comfort. And his son took the advice of, of some men who said, David doesn't really care about you. And what the king of Ammon did is he shaved you know, half their beards off, these ambassadors that came from Jerusalem. And also what they did is they cut off their garments and they would make these um, you know, alliances with Syria and then with some of the uh, people from Mesopotamia they hired to come and fight against David, so David goes to war. And we saw that David defeated the Syrians and those of Mesopotamia, and it was those of Ammon that would hide in, in Rebah. And Rebah was there, uh, their stronghold for the winter. And then as we open up chapter 20, you recall that Joab would go back to war. And it happened in the spring of the year that the time that the kings go out to battle, that Joab led the armed forces and they would go and they would defeat the Ammonites. And right you know, before they would overtake the city, they called for David and David would kind of be there when they mopped up the city and David would wear that crown. Now, one of the things that isn't recorded, as we mentioned last week, that in chapter 20 here, at verse 1, 2 Samuel tells us what? That in the time of the spring, when the kings was to go out to battle, David stayed in Jerusalem, and what happened? He sinned with Bathsheba, didn't he? And the Bible is not shy about recording the sins and the failures of David, even though he was a man after God's own heart. But the Holy Spirit didn't inspire the writer of Chronicles to put that in. And David really blew it. I mean, he sinned with Bathsheba. He was guilty of adultery, but also he was guilty of murder. Uriah the Hittite, as we saw in the Chronicles here, listed as one of David's mighty men. And they said, this is, you know, Bathsheba. This is the, the daughter of one of your mighty men, Eliam. And this is also the husband of one of your mighty men, Uriah. David, you know who she is. David says, I want her. And he sinned, and she became pregnant. And then so he tried to cover it up, but he ended up coming up with a plan to where Uriah was killed in battle. He was guilty of murder as well. So here, that skipped over, and, and David was a man that also was, you know, suffered a serious consequences of his sin with Bathsheba as Nathan came and said, David, your son's going to die. And also, we know that the prophet would say that there's going to be turmoil in your family. And we see that that took place as Second Samuel records that. So all of that is kind of skipped over in First Chronicles. But one of the sins of David is not skipped over. And that's what we're going to talk about in chapter 21. And that is when David counted the people. And I think that it shows us very clearly. You see, David's going to take a census. And it's not that, you know, David said, well, I just want to see how many people there are. It was more than that. There was pride that was in the heart of David. And I think that the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of Chronicles to put this insert in here because it shows us the seriousness of pride. Pride is a terrible, terrible sin. 
And that's the problem here with David numbering the people. Let's begin to look at that. We'll read through it, and then I kind of want to sum things up when we get to the end of the chapter here tonight. But in chapter 21, verse 1, Satan stood up against Israel, moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, go number um, Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And so David wants to number the people. Now, when you initially read this, you think, what's so bad about that? I mean, we take census all the time here in our nation and cities does, so we know how many people that there are. And we also know that Moses took two census in the book of Numbers, one in the beginning of their wilderness wandering and then one at the end. But you see, Moses was told to, to make a census of the different tribes, and that was going to play a role in the inheritance that they would receive when they went into the promised land. Here it is different. It isn't that David is going to number the people from Dan to Beersheba. That's just uh, phraseology to say all of the country, Dan in the very northern part of the country, Beersheba in the very southern part of the number. But what David is doing is he is numbering his military. He wants to know how strong he is. I want to know how many fighting men do I have that we can go to war against other nations? And many scholars believe that this is towards the end of David's reign, and David has become prideful in his heart. And, and David wants to know, how strong am I? I want to see the number, bring that number to me that I may know. And he was trusting in the strength of his army. And he had gotten away from trusting in the Lord. We know that in the book of Psalms, chapter 33, verse 16, that it tells us that no king is saved by the multitude of an army. Psalm 116, or excuse me, Psalm 118 tells us that it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. And may we always remember that, that we can have a tendency sometimes, even as Christians, to put our confidence in men, in man's way. But we need to put our trust in the Lord. It is better to put our trust in him and his ways than to put confidence in man. And of course, David would write in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, that some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the Lord our God. And David was one that we've already seen in First Chronicles, that he defeated his enemies, he took those horses that were pulling the chariots and he hamstrung the horses. Why? Because he didn't want to trust in the horses. He didn't want to trust in the chariots. He wanted to trust in the Lord. But at this time, for some reason, David's becoming prideful. Now it's interesting, in verse 1 here it says that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. We know that this account here is given to us in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And in 2 Samuel chapter 24, it says that the Lord was angry at Israel and caused David to number Israel. So which is it? Was it Satan or was it the Lord? And the Bible tells us that in James chapter 1 in the New Testament, verse 13, let no one say that when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And I think what's happening here is that God allowed Satan to, taint, to tempt David, and David went for it. Rather than seeking God and repenting, he listened to Satan rather than listening to God. You see, that's what pride does. Pride will harden your heart to where your heart against the things of the Lord. You're not really receiving the things of the Lord. It will plug your ears to hear from the Lord spiritually. 
That's what pride does. It's just bad news. And, and we need to be careful that we don't let pride creep into our lives. And at one point in his life, David would say, Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way and lead me into everlasting life. Lead me into righteousness is what he was saying. And David at this point, he wasn't listening to the Lord. He was prideful. His heart is hard for some reason. And it's interesting that in 2 Samuel chapter 24 that it says that God was angry at Israel. Now, what exactly does that mean? Does it mean because David was prideful that the nation was starting to get prideful? I'm not exactly sure because what we're going to see here is that Joab is going to kind of question this. He's going to call David on the carpet here and also the captains of his army in 2 Samuel chapter 24 does that. Let's go ahead and read that verse 3. Joab answered as David wanted to number the people, may the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are, but my Lord the king are they not all my Lord's servant? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? And nevertheless the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. So Joab, he spoke his mind. You know Joab, he's the commander of, of David's armies. We see him a lot in 2 Samuel. And Joab was one that was faithful to David for many years. He was one that at times, he seemed like a very spiritual man, but at other times he was a loose cannon. And he did what he wanted to do. He killed Abner. Uh, he was one that killed David's son, Absalom, when David told him not to do it. So Joab here, in this case, he was right to say, Hey, David, may the Lord bless you and a hundred times more, but don't do this thing. It's like Joab is saying, Why are you doing this? Because it's going to be you know, trouble. You're going to cause iniquity to Israel. And I believe that he sensed the pride in David's heart. And as I mentioned to you, 2 Samuel chapter 24 also tells us that it was the captains of David's army that would warn him not to do this. So was the nation pride? Well, there's evidence that the captains and Joab, they were warning David against this, or was it David just is representing Israel? But I will say this, that moms and dads or any of us that lead in any way, maybe in your business or at work or even in the ministry, that pride can affect a whole lot of people. And you see, if I become prideful in the ministry and, and I begin to boast, what happens is people will begin to join in in that. And I've seen it happen. Well, you know what? We got the happening church. We got the big church. We got all the programs. We, we got all of this. And we need to always guard against that and always remember that the glory goes to God alone. So David here, he's prideful. They're sensing it. And, and he wants the, uh, the um, numbers of, of fighting men. Joab is warning him, but it would be David's word that overruled Joab. And even though David was warned... Also, what we get from this is to remember this, that there's safety in a multitude of counsel, that is, godly counsel. There were these men that were coming to David and saying, David, don't do this. And we need to remember that's a good thing. When we have those who come to us that say, you know what, you've got the wrong attitude, or you're on the wrong track, or you're missing the mark here, uh, you're going down the wrong road, you need to turn away from it. 
And we need to be thankful when we have brothers and sisters that come to us with the word of God and with love that desire to give us godly counsel. And we want to have hearts that are sensitive to listening to godly counsel when that happens. But David wasn't at this point. And so we continue in verse 5. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. And Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. So according to the account in 2 Samuel, it took nearly 10 months for them to take this census. The number comes to, right now, over 1.5 million soldiers without counting Benjamin and Levi because Joab, he wasn't going to do that. He was upset. It was abominable to him. And so he leaves those two tribes out. But this is a huge army for these days. These are big numbers. And I think David had an idea how big his army was. He just wanted to hear it. I got this huge army. Look how powerful that I am. And so here the numbers come in, and he does. It shows that the population probably of Israel at this time is 7, 8 million people. The nation is strong. And in verse 7, And God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So God strikes Israel. David confesses his sin. He said, I sin greatly. Again, the word confess means literally to be in agreement with. Notice that David didn't make excuses. He didn't say, well, you know, I'm a great king and I've been blessed and I just want to know how powerful my army is and all of this. And you see, when we come to the Lord, we need to humble ourselves to the point where we say, when we confess our sins, Lord, I'm in agreement with you that this is wrong. This is sin. This is transgression. This is iniquity. Sin means missing the mark. It means literally to miss the mark. It literally has the meaning of that an archer is trying to hit the bullseye, but he misses it. And we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, haven't we? We've missed the bullseye of heaven. And so that's what sin means. And then transgression means that you know where the line is and you say, I don't care where the line is. I'm going to cross over that line. I don't care if I sin. That's transgression, that you deliberately on purpose that you're going to sin against the Lord and transgress against his word. And then iniquity kind of covers it all. And David is saying, forgive me of my iniquity. I have done foolishly. And any time that we are involved in transgressions or iniquity or sin, it's foolishness against God. He realizes his pride, but he doesn't make excuses. He, he's not like the one Jesus said, the Pharisee who came to the temple and said, I'm not, you know, thank you, Lord, I'm not like other men. But the one who wouldn't even look up into heaven, that tax collector. And he would smote his breast and he said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. It is us coming to saying that, Lord, I have sinned. And I'm not going to excuse it away. I'm not going to, you know, try to explain it away. I have sinned. I'm in agreement with you. So here is David. He confesses that sin as God is striking Israel here. And the Lord spoke to Gad. How is God going to strike David? Well, Gad is told by God in verse 10, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose for yourself either three, three years of famine 
or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else for three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. David, you got three choices. Now why would God do this? I'm not exactly sure except maybe to test David's heart in his wisdom. We know that Hebrews in the New Testament tells us that whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and whom he loves, he disciplines. He disciplines every son. Just as a parent, we discipline our children. We don't discipline our children when they do wrong because we get enjoyment out of it. You know, having four kids, I've never enjoyed disciplining my kids. I hate disciplining them, but I know that it's necessary. And any parent that loves their children will discipline them when they're doing wrong. And it's a loving father that disciplines us, as Hebrew says, out of his love for us and because we are his children. So here David is about ready to be disciplined. Hey, you got three choices here. They're not good choices, are they? It's like the father is saying you're going to get you know, whipped and you have a choice of which rod that is going to be used. And David here, he has these choices of three years of famine, which will bring many deaths to the nation, or three months to be defeated by your foes, your enemies, many soldiers and many people would die by the sword, or three days the plague in the land that would come by the angel of the Lord. And of course, many would die, as we're going to see. David was told that you would give an answer to the Gad, the prophet, I probably would have answered, do I have to get back to you soon? Can I get back to you in about 20 years or something? But David has to answer and get back to him. And verse 13, David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. And his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. That's why I think that God was testing the wisdom in the heart of David. And I think that David in this, as difficult as it is, throws himself at the mercy of God, is showing great wisdom here. The psalmist in Psalm 136 writes over and over again, for the, his mercy endures forever. For his mercy endures forever. And we know that his mercies are new every day. That we believe in an incredible, merciful God. And David says, I'd rather put my hands in a merciful God, even though this is not good. He's in distress. I'd rather do that than put my hands into the hands of the enemy. Because they won't be merciful. And the world won't be merciful. And always remember that. You put your hands into the hands of a merciful God. And the world is not going to show any mercy to you. The enemy, Satan, is not going to show any mercy to you. So David is using wisdom in this. And we read in verse 17, The Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, It is enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they done? 
Let your hand, I pray, O Lord, my God, be against me in my father's house, but not against your people that they should be plagued. And therefore, verse 18 tells us, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, in which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. 70,000 ended up falling. And it was David here and the leaders that they put on sackcloth. As they see the angel of the Lord. David sees the angel of the Lord with the sword outstretched over Jerusalem. And this plague is going on. And they fall on their faces in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, they're humbling themselves. And one of the characteristics for us to come to the point of confessing our sin is to come and humble ourselves before the Lord. And that can be a hard thing. But it's a very mature thing to do. You see, there are times where we need to humble ourselves. Jesus would talk about if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, he told his disciples, that you need to come in childlike faith. And if you want to be great, the greatest servant of all, you need to be one as a child, humbled as a child. And so those lessons that Jesus gave about humility and and coming as a humble servant before the Lord. But humility is also a part of repentance as well. And when we have true repentance, it means that we're humbling ourselves before God and here sackcloth and falling on their faces, that's an act of that, that they were truly repenting and humbled before God. And that's what we need to do when we repent. Characteristics of repentance will take on humility and confession, not making excuses, not being prideful not pointing the finger at everybody else. And so that's what David is doing here. And this angel here, and he's told to, um, you know, go to the threshing floor of Onan the Jebusite and, and offer a sacrifice. And we read in verse 20, Now Ornan turned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. Now, I have to stop. I was thinking about this. The four sons see the angel. They bolt. They take off. Ornan, he keeps working. And I think, why would he keep... Is he that much of a workaholic? I don't know. But he keeps threshing wheat. And, and his sons, they make a bolt for it. So anyway, that came across my mind. But David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David. And he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. And he shall grant it to me at the full price uh, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, Take it to yourself and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for, for wood, and the wheat for the grain offerings. I give it all. And then David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the lord nor offer burnt offerings with that which cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. So here's Ornan. He has this threshing floor, and David is going to buy it. Ornan says, I'll give you everything. I'll give you the oxen for the burnt offering. I'll give you the grain for the peace offering. I'll, I'll give you the threshing tools. I'll give you the wood. I'll give you everything. It's all yours. And David says, no, I'm not going to offer a sacrifice and take that which cost me nothing. 
So he buys it for uh, silver and gold. And this threshing floor now is going to be the place where David is going to give um, sacrifice. As we read, he built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And he answered them from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. So the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to its sheath. And at that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering which Moses had made in the wilderness were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. There's four things that I'd like to make application I'm going to kind of work backwards as we finish looking at this chapter. Number one in, in verses 29 and 23, that we know that the tabernacle was in Gibeah. And David, you see, didn't go there to sacrifice. That was the place where they were to sacrifice at this time because he was afraid of the angel of the Lord. So David, when he is told by Gad to buy the threshing floor of Ornan, he does that. He offers a burnt uh, offering and the peace offering. The burnt offering, of course, Leviticus chapter 1, symbolizes consecration to God, fully surrendering to the Lord. It was the animal that was placed on the altar and completely consumed, and it makes application for you and to me that we are to give all of ourselves, all of our hearts to the Lord to please Him consecrate ourselves to him, a life to live for him. And then the peace offering symbolizes fellowship with the Lord. And the Lord accepted the sacrifice as fire came down from heaven to consume the sacrifice there on the altar. And so David knew that that sacrifice had been accepted. So now this is going to be the place where David's going to build the temple. You see, when the children of Israel came into the promised land, they were told, you don't just go and sacrifice anywhere. You can't be like the Canaanites and just go up on the high hills and in the wooden groves and sacrifice there like they did. And we're going to see that the high places and the wooden groves, again, are going to be mentioned when we go through some of the kings of Judah. And what had happened was, is that the Lord said that I want a specific place where you're going to come and sacrifice. And that's where the temple was. The temple was there at Shiloh for a little bit, and then it was at Gibeah. And that's where the people were to come to bring the sin sacrifice, trespass sacrifice, you know, the, the burnt offerings and all of that. That was to be done at the tabernacle. They were not to just to go anywhere and, and offer sacrifice to the Lord. And what happens, as we're going to see later on in some of the kings of Judah, when they fall into idol worship, is they go to those places the Canaanites had set up, and they reestablish them as false places of worship and sacrifice. The Lord said, I'm going to choose a place where you're going to sacrifice and really worship me, and this is the place now. He's choosing Jerusalem as his holy city, and where the temple's going to be built, where the sacrifices are going to come. So you stand and you on the Mount of Olives, and as you look at Jerusalem, you see the Dome of the Rock, that golden dome, which is a, a Muslim mosque that is there in Jerusalem, and it's up on that temple mount that Solomon's temple was. That's where Onan's thresh, threshing floor was on Mount Moriah that, that goes upwards, northwards, and they cut into the city to build the temple mount, of course, to flatten it. And so that's where the temple is going to be built as God accepted the sacrifice. That's number one. Number two, as we look at this, we know here 
that in verse 24, that David, as the offer is made, I'll give you everything, David. And David says, I'm not going to take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which cost me nothing. I like that David says that. And I think that, what if it was me? If he said, you know, have it all, I would have said, good, because I've had a rough week, you know, and I, you know, thank you for giving me all this stuff, and I could use a break. But David realized something. You see, if he would have done that, it would have been Ornan's sacrifice and not his. Our salvation is free. Praise God, isn't it? I mean, we can't pay for our salvation. We can't redeem ourselves. We can't have righteousness imputed by our own selves. It's imputed by God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He paid the price. And it's a gift of God, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. But with that said, Jesus would become the sacrifice for you and for me. As he gave everything, gave up his life, became a bondservant, was obedient to death, to death on the cross. And he did it so that we might have forgiveness of sin, we might have the hope of eternity, and right relationship with the Father. So as we see his incredible grace and mercy and love towards us, how can we not be a living sacrifice for him? And what my prayer is, is that none of us, and I'm sure none of us here feel this way, but how can we say when the Lord has given us of his Son, because of his love for us, to say, I'm not going to live a life for the Lord. I'm not going to be a living sacrifice. I'm not going to give him the first fruits of my day. I'm busy. I'm tired in the mornings. I'm not going to give him my time for service for him. I'm not going to give to the church. I'm not going to invest in the kingdom of God. How can we say that? Our Christianity has cost us nothing. Are we going to act that way? I like what Clark says. He says, he who has a religion that costs him nothing has a religion that is worth nothing. And I pray for all of us that we would do what Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we would become that living sacrifice that's designed to live for the Lord in our devotion and in our service for Him, our lives for Him, giving our resources to Him. I've had people come to me once in a while, not often, but once in a while they'll say, well, I don't need to serve the Lord to be saved. You don't. I don't need to give to the church. Matter of fact, that's what I like about Calvary Chapels. They never ask for money, and I've been going here for years. I've never given any money. That's wonderful. (laughs) We want you to give freely and willingly, and we don't ask for money. And we want you to give because you want to give. We want you to be here because you want to be here. We want you to serve because you want to be here. But as I look at my Lord and I see the sacrifice he paid for me, I want to be a living sacrifice for him. I don't want to give him the leftovers of my life. I want to give him the first fruits. There is a sacrifice in becoming a Christian and desiring to live for him. And you know it, don't you? Some of you have lost out in maybe promotions at work. Some of you have lost family members that, you know, just won't talk to you, that close relationship with them. And 
maybe friends that no longer want to talk to you. You don't enjoy maybe some of the things of the world that other people have because you've made a commitment to not get involved in the pleasures of the world, to prioritize the world. That you've made a priority that you're going to raise your children in the ways of the Lord. There is a sacrifice, but it's a living sacrifice that is a blessed life for the Lord. And we never, may we have the attitude of, I'm more concerned about being comfortable than being committed. And I'm afraid that today in Christianity that there's so much of the me mentality when it's to be about him and dying to self and picking up our cross and following after him. Jesus said, count the cost. But it's a blessed life and it's a life of abundant life. David said, I'm not going to take that which costs me nothing. I'm going to give to the Lord and the sacrifice to him. Thirdly, verse 17, for you note takers. David said, was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed, but these sheep, what have they done? We've talked about this before. One of the tactics of the enemy is that if you sin or get involved in this thing, nobody will get hurt. It doesn't matter. Nobody will find out. And it's a lie of the enemy. And here's the thing. You who perhaps are, have your own business or mom and dads or ministry leaders. If we sin, it's not just about us. We hurt a whole lot of people. And if any of us sin, the people that are linked to us in our lives get hurt and it affects them. So don't ever buy into the lie of the enemy, you know, the world that you're not hurting anybody. It doesn't affect anybody. Yes, it does. Here David sinned and affected a whole nation. 70,000 ended up dying. And one of the things that I always want to remember is this, that God has given me an awesome responsibility and privilege to pastor this church, which I've had the privilege of doing for 17 years. And I want to come into this place with fear and trembling of the great responsibility and position that he has given to me. And I never want to do anything to hurt the sheep. Because I know that if I fall into sin, a whole lot of people are going to get hurt. Not just my family, but a whole lot of people in this community. And that's why we need to pray for each other. We need to encourage each other in the things of the Lord. Mom and dads, if you sin, guess who gets hurt? It's your children. Those of you who are overseeing people at work, if you sin, a whole lot of people get hurt. And here a whole nation is going through the consequences and the repercussions of sin. And there is forgiveness in sin, but there are terrible repercussions because of sin. And we need to remember that. And every day saying, Lord, I want to walk in your ways. And as we talked about on Sunday, that's why it's a loving father that says, stay away from sin. Because it's bad news. And you're going to get hurt, and a whole lot of other people are going to get hurt. And it's going to bring defeat and discouragement. And it's going to bring terrible, terrible sorrow and sadness to you and to a whole lot of people. And that's what happened here. Fourthly, and then we'll be done. David had the pride of sin. 
or the sin of pride. He forgot that his strength is in the Lord. And may you remember individually, may we remember in our families and as a church, that our strength is in the Lord. Our strength is in the Lord. It's not in how smart we are. It's not how intelligent we are. It's not in how together we are, how talented we are, how much prestige that we have, possessions. It isn't any of those things. It's in the Lord. And as we talk tonight, we see that there are those that are losing everything. They've lost their homes and their possessions. It's all gone up. And you see, that can happen to us. And the Bible talks a whole lot about, you know, store up your treasures in heaven because the treasures here on earth are going to go away and thieves come in and break and things can happen. EF5 tornadoes going through Oklahoma where homes are destroyed and we grieve for the people. Certainly we're sad. But it shows me that He is everything. That He is our foundation. He's our strength. And that He is our inheritance. That we need to remember that He is the one that we trust in and give glory to. And He's our strength. And we need to remember that as a church. You see, it's very easy for me as a pastor to feel the pressures that other pastors can feel in other ministries. That, you know what, our strength is in buildings and in programs and in budgets and in staff and all these other things. And I never want to go there. Our strength is in the Lord. And in Him alone. And our strength is in good people like you. We're here and we're loving one another and we're doing the work of the ministry and we care for one another. It isn't in the budgets. We have a budget because we want to be responsible. It isn't in the building. We try to take care of the building and be good, good stewards of it, but that's not our strength. It isn't in the number of staff. It isn't in any of those things. It's in the Lord. And may we always remember that here at Calvary Chapel. That we're not going to trust in the horses and the chariots. I don't want to, to get into, well, we've got to have bigger this and more of that and more glorious all of this. We've got to have the smoke and the laser lights. And, <laughs> and I don't want to be critical. I mean, churches want to do that. They can do that. You know, one of these times I, I feel like saying to Travis, you know, I'm just going to sit up here on the stool and just sing a cappella. Really, seriously, let me ask you, would you worship? The reason I don't do it because my voice is so terrible. So. <laughs> so we're blessed to have Travis and for Dustin and the others on the worship team that will lead us in the worship, in the simplicity of worship and simplicity of the teaching of the Word of God and loving one another and encouraging one another and giving glory to God. And may we always remember that. And pray for me. Pray for the leadership here, that we always keep that the priority. And if the Lord gives us a bigger facility someday, praise God. But I want Him to get the glory. And if we have more ministry opportunities, praise God. I want Him to get the glory. But I always want to point people past what we have and the things that we have. 
And we always want to point him to the Lord because he's our strength and our salvation in everything that we need. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these reminders that, Lord, they are so important that we, as we read this chapter, and our strength and salvation is in you alone, Lord. And, Father, may we be ones that we have a desire to live for you. And so, Lord, I want to pray for a couple things. First of all, I pray if there's anyone here in the sanctuary or those sitting out in the coffee shop listening to this message, if there is anyone here that hasn't received the free gift of salvation that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection, that we want to give you opportunity tonight. You can't save yourself. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ, realizing that you're a sinner, and in your heart confessing that, that, that I have sinned and I need the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, who died for me on Calvary's cross. And the Bible says that if you believe in the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Jesus died for us, the one who lived a perfect life. And he cried out from the cross, it is finished. I've done the work and I've provided for forgiveness of sin. And now we come in faith. That is, you put your faith and trust, surrender your life to him. You repent. You turn to Jesus. Quit going the direction you're going. And you cry out to him. And he's going to hear your cry. And if he's knocking on the door of anyone's heart tonight for salvation, maybe you've been coming and hearing Bible study. Bible study won't save you. Belonging to a church won't save you. Maybe you think that God would never forgive you. All manner of sin have been forgiven. He took all of your sins and it was placed upon him and he died for you and for your sins. There is forgiveness and he will receive whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord. And you qualify as a whosoever. So if that means anything to anyone listening to this message, open up your heart to Jesus right now and you pray, Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. And Lord, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. Jesus, I believe you died on Calvary's cross for me. I surrender my life to you. I believe you rose from the grave. You're alive and in my heart right now. And I thank you. Be my personal Lord and Savior. And help me to walk with you and to live for you all the days of my life. And thank you for hearing my prayer. If you prayed that prayer, I want to talk to you after the service. Come up and pray with me and tell me the decision you made. But also, just a couple more minutes more.